if you look at the definition now, a business exists to make money for its shareholders. But actually, there was a court by EY, and in the next five to 10 years, a business should basically be including more social and ethical um, alignments to how business is conducted. And I definitely feel that that would help. On today's show, we're talking to Sade Amali, the Fissilis CEO and co-founder. And we're asking what responsibility technology companies have to the wider good. How can we make sure that algorithms don't fail because they take up the bias of the world already around us? And then we have a look at how that feeds into security and the way that organisations are protecting themselves. And we do that by talking to our very own global CISO, Jim Tiller. This is Tech Talks, your weekly technology podcast, hosted by myself, David Savage, brought to you by the Harvey Nash Group. Joining me on today's show, we've got Hannah. Hannah Stevens, how are you? Hello, I'm very well, thank you. Been a few weeks since you've been on the show. You've, you've had some monumental moves in the time. You've you've travelled from the Midlands to the southeast. I've done, I've done that really original thing of moving to London in your twenties. You know, I mean, it feels quite original in the post-pandemic world when you know everyone's saying that you everyone's can work from anywhere, opposite. and you've gone, "No, I am still <laughs> going to move to London. Still going to lose all my money and live in London." Yes, I think it has to be done. Like you said, it's it's what you do in your early twenties. It's character building. Just jumping on the the bandwagon. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Why not? Uh, something else to say to you today. Happy New Year. Happy Chinese Lunar New Year. Chinese Lunar New Year. I don't know. Uh, well, it's but based it, on the lunar, so. That's true. That's certainly yeah. true. So, to any Chinese listeners, uh, Happy New Year. It is the year of the tiger. Great. You're looking at me like, great. <laughs> Do you know what year you were born in? What, what, what animal are you? What year I was born in? Uh, I was in the year of the rat, which is a really nice reflection. Oh, Apparently. So I. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. Hang on, how many? How many? Mm, they're twelve. Does that mean you're twelve years younger than me? Oh God! <laughs> Quick maths for it. Yeah. Oh no! Yeah, the rat <laughs> won, the, won the race, didn't it? And the ox was second. There yeah. we go. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the tiger's means... supposed to be like competitive, brave, driven, but I didn't realise that the year that is recognised as the Chinese New Year, so like the tiger, anybody that's the tiger this year, it's bad luck for them. And they say that you should wear red socks and underwear to scare off the tiger for the new year. Just for today? No, for like throughout the year. Really? Yeah. That's a lot of red socks and red underwear. I know. Hang on. So if you're born in the year of the tiger, you're the one that has to scare off the tiger. Surely if you're born in this year, it should be everyone else scaring off the tiger. That does make sense. But again, that's what they recommend. Fair enough. Well, look, on today's show, we've got two interviews. First of all, we're talking to Fasalis, an organization who are trying to strip bias out of AI. And then later on in the show, we are talking to our new global CISO, Jim Tiller, and finding the the bridge between those two interviews. But we'll start with Sade, and then we will be back in a moment with some conversation. So I'm chatting to Sade. How are you? I am well. Thank you, David. CEO of, hopefully I do get this right, Fissilis. 
Vesalis. Vesalis. There we go. Needs to place, needs to place the emphasis on the vowel there. That's that's exactly my, perhaps, that. I'm going to blame it on being northern rather than not being able to read. <laughs> Whichever you choose, but yeah, I guess I'll explain what it is. It's a fruit that actually has a fruit in the middle and then a husk that opens up. So I guess that's kind of like an ode to what we're doing. We're breaking apart the layers and revealing what's underneath essentially yeah, okay i've heard of fasalis as in as in the fruit so yeah, yeah. okay <laughs> um so yeah fasalis your company uh before we kind of dive into that i know you've kind of alluded to what you do there you yourself your ceo you're a, you're a consumer psychologist behavior yeah. uh economist and data scientist exactly so tell, tell us a little bit about how you got to, to the position that you are today with 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 Vesalis. So what led me um, to going into data science is essentially my degree is in psychology and data science. I've always had a keen interest in humans and why we do what we do, what makes us tick. And um, graduating during the crash, I had no idea what I was going to do. And it was my uncle that kind of led me to understand and discover data science. Um, it wasn't on the curriculum when I was at university, but essentially I was taken on um, as a junior and it was all about my interest really in people and then the coding came afterwards essentially um, I mainly worked with people that were well versed in machine learning and deep science but I guess I was always in between the technical people and the business being able to translate and actually action some of those models that were being built a really good kind of, I, I suppose, standard bearer for that idea that you, you know, you you go to university, you you do a science, yeah. it gives you that framework, and then the technology industry actually is something that is definitely still a, a route that's open to you. Exactly that. Exactly that. Now look, let, let's get back to Fasalis then. What yeah. what does the business do? So Fasalis is an AI-powered market research platform. Firstly, um, it's probably going to have multiple use cases later on down the line once we've cracked it. But essentially, we allow companies to come to us with their market research briefs and then we match them with responders. We have around 1.1 million responders here in the UK and we have um, responders in Europe and most of EMEA. Once the brief has gone out, people essentially, you and I, the general population, can answer those briefs using video. So at the comfort of their own home, they record those videos, we process them using natural language processing and emotion detection, and then we spit it out into reports. So we've created a new vertical within market research, which is uh, qualitative into quant. So we're starting with qualitative information and then spitting it out into um, quant visualization. So yeah, that's what we do, I guess. The bigger picture is maybe being able to help more in the sciences. So doctors that do a lot of reporting and voice to text. So being able to potentially even later on down the line, um, diagnosing um, personality differences or things that people really, really struggle with. But our, I guess our route to entry for now is is um, market research. OK, kind of begs the question, why, why do we need AI powered market research? Um, yeah. uh, and, and kind of how you came to that as, as as being something that you thought there was some market fit for? So I guess um, it's more the bias that exists in the world in general that specifically in market research have done a lot of work in research and typically how it used to work traditionally. So, 
you'll have um, a brief and then you basically um, get a group of people to participate in your market research. You'll either film this um, video, uh, you'll film it on video or you would basically sit and watch and try and understand what people were saying, what they were thinking. And this is where we thought it was a good opportunity for um, machines to come in and help. And before, I guess, launching this particular proposition, I did a lot of research with researchers and tried to understand what was good and bad um, example of market research. And a lot of what was coming up, what was good, was when people have been put into a WhatsApp group and they can freely type from the comfort of their home what they've been doing, um, what they've been purchasing. And I think that's more of an accurate view, essentially, of what people are thinking and feeling instead of having a list of 50 questions essentially you get to number 20 and you're kind of just ticking anything um, which essentially goes into wasted marketing spend off the back of that how um try and phrase this question Rob, no. but how accurate can 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 ai be algorithms be in stripping bias out of marketing and getting to something that is is bias free or I appreciate that bias-free is, is is not realistic, but yeah. you know, there's that famous example a few years ago where Netflix made a whole load of Adam Sandler films yeah. because Adam Sandler was the most popular uh, kind of actor yeah. on the platform, even though actually Adam Sandler films had stopped being good years ago, and they ended up with a whole load of rubbish content that I suppose no one was particularly interested in. So, kind of using unbiased algorithms to try and give you outcomes can be very tricky, especially if you don't ask the right question. I mean, exactly. th that, that gray area of, of using it to strip bias out is that's a, that's a tricky challenge, right? You can end up with answers that, that are particularly misleading. Exactly that. And that is what our work is about. So we've been in stealth mode for a number of months. And the reason why we haven't gone to a SaaS solution yet is because we're not just claiming to, we really are interested in this area. And more so, I guess, I think it's important for humans to understand each other. So we go through a really, really vigorous um, process. We should have some white papers coming out soon. But one of the things we're doing and hoping to work with some of the best brains in this industry is understanding the I do say gap. So people saying one thing, but actually doing another. And that requires a lot of, of tests, essentially, hence we're using video. That requires, I guess, certain minds who actually care to take it to the next level. I really think it's about the people building the algorithms. So for example, making sure that it's actually inclusive of the world that we live in. Sounds like such a simple thing, but similar to what you alluded to, the reasons why algorithms fell in the first place is that they're taking on the bias that already exists in the world. So um, for example, there are loads of companies, one being COSA, that their whole uh, proposition is being able to sift out biases, putting not going too technical, but putting in different weightings when you've overskewed on a particular demographic. So it's essentially the science and actually caring to go the extra mile with anything in life. Um, I hope that does make sense and wasn't too technical. No, no, absolutely. Um, I suppose then the the interesting jump point is is that that's quite a 
a niche concern. Like I get it. Like marketing at the minute in particular, yeah. you know, there's articles in, in the papers today about, you know, smart TVs collecting data and, and, and there's a huge vast, you know, there's a vast amount of data being collected. It, it makes sense that, that's, that firms are using algorithms to try and determine how best to, to push the right content to people. But you alluded at the beginning that there are lots of potential user cases yes. for Fisalis. What are some of those? Where do you see this potentially going? Okay, so, and I think this ties in with the question you just asked before. I think the missing part is blending different disciplines, so such as psychology, human insight. That's something that we kind of haven't done before. We're kind of in a a place where it's very numbers driven. It's what are the numbers behind the algorithm as opposed to the sorts of data you're feeding feeding in. So what Fazalis is able to do is actually take the emotions in someone's face or the uh, cultural differences in those emotions blend that with the numbers as well so being able to we're doing a project at the moment where someone's body language is essentially a bit different to what they're actually saying what does that mean right now we don't know Um, so in terms of the use cases later on um, I'd be really really excited to maybe get involved in projects with the NHS. So, for example, being dyslexic myself and having a number of friends who are neurodiverse, such as ADHD, and having to wait, you know, two years for a diagnosis, when actually I believe that in the way that we interact, it's quite different if you're on one end of a spectrum or another. And um, basically machine learning can at least help to aid and speed up those sorts of diagnoses. But also fill in a gap, I guess, for people that do do suffer because they're on a spectrum and help them communicate better, essentially, if if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I, and and that is is all stuff that we can kind of get our heads around and and go, yeah, that's that's making a really positive difference. What are the areas that is increasingly being talked about or has been talked about? Let's place it for for the last six months to a year with with greater. Um, detail is around explainability of AI Mm. do you kind of see as someone who runs a a business in this space is there a kind of a limit to the amount of AI that should be introduced to business because is there a danger perhaps that organizations uh, having AI making decisions on the basis of data and AI that they're not fully conscious of could be a, a problem for them Yeah, and most definitely. And it's one that I think about quite a lot. Um, I don't think you can mention AI or machine learning and not mention Elon Musk. So I know that he has an ethical, not-for-profit AI society that's set up to basically test the boundaries in where AI should go. I think we kind of need to see more collaboration between businesses and um, and the government, I, I definitely think that's a massive thing. I, I also feel that the mandate of what a business should be doing is essentially changing. So if you look at the definition now, a business exists to make money for its shareholders. But actually, there was a court by EY. And in the next five to 10 years, a business should basically be including more social and ethical um, alignments to how business is conducted. And I definitely feel that that would help. Um, there, There is a lot that can be done, but I think the gap is also in 
the understanding of AI. It's essentially learning from us. It, it's essentially learning from who we are. Um, and I think it gives us a great opportunity for a paradigm shift to build a world in the future that's more inclusive, not taking on the bias that already exists. And yeah, I definitely think it's uh, a subject that kind of requires multiple disciplines and multiple heads to, to sit and, and ponder this. That That's my take on it. So look, um, obviously, if someone is interested in finding out about Fasalis, I would imagine the website is the best place to go. Yes, the website or LinkedIn. I'm Shade Amale, and yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. Actually. And Amale is A M A L E. Yeah, and Shade S A D E. For any firm out there or, or brand who's conduct, conducting market research, perhaps they're not at the stage yet of of, of going out and uh, and working with a consultancy. What would you say to them? What would be the takeaway that that they, they should be thinking about if they are concerned about bias? Yeah, I would say definitely um, that, as I mentioned before, there are a few companies out there with a quick Google search who will do the heavy lifting for you that are in stealth mode, who essentially are spending months or years trying to work out um, the best way to mitigate bias. Again, something that we're doing here as well. Um, It is, I guess, I think there's a gap in terms of... um, terminology and how best to explain um, data science but I would say yeah starting with a Google search or starting with um, yeah what your company does essentially to support ethical AI I think that's super super important of course you can come to Bazalis we're hoping to publish as I mentioned a few white papers but also I think from top up just getting more connected with marketing associations and bodies and filtering that down I think it's a difficult one to answer because I don't think anyone has taken full responsibility um, or even starting with the government to see I guess who they've patronised as the people that they feel are um, I guess above the trend in terms of um, being ethical and yeah that, that those are the tips I'll give but I think we're all in it together it's happening um but yeah we've all just got to at least be conscious first and then hopefully um it comes full circle well look it's really um lovely to be able to talk to you today so thank you for giving up some time and I I hope that uh things at Fasalis continue to go well thank you so much it's been a pleasure and yeah look forward to seeing where things go and hopefully we can just be I guess, got a great opportunity um, with machine learning to do a lot of the heavy lifting and really make a difference for diversity and inclusion that hopefully, I guess, we're we're all on board to kind of build a different world to what we have now. Absolutely. Thanks for your time. Thank you. I found large elements of this really quite interesting because increasingly we are relying on AI there is this problem of explainability in AI. And, you know, when when Sade said that algorithms fail because they take on the bias in the world already, it is a it is one of those concerns that I have that is like, well, how how aware are most people of that? And if they're not aware, it's not that companies aren't aware of this. Obviously, companies are aware of explainability in AI, but are they rushing products out to market and cutting corners or are they really making sure that the data 
you know, because because every single growth company just wants, you know, it's data and it, it's users. They're not necessarily are they being held to the highest standards? Do you kind of get what I'm, what I'm trying to suggest there? Yeah, and I think you know, with these big budgets that big organisations have in market research to try and not manipulate the data, but kind of see what are the trends and to influence the market with market research like this, it's really critical to make sure that. You know, we've seen that with false information and that being picked up by AI and the influence of that. I think it's really important to kind of review it whenever, you know, everybody putting AI on a pedestal. But actually, you know, um, she says in the interview about ethical AI. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really important aspect that needs to be considered whenever they are thinking about market research. And are we thinking AI just for the sake of it or are we thinking about it in deeper and more meaningful terms as well. Yeah, and she talks about demographics. She talks about the fact that she herself um, has dyslexia. She talks about neurodiversity. Um, we are the, at the beginning here in the UK, anyway, of LGBTQ plus history month. Um, Hannah reminded me before we hit record that it's Black History Month in the US. You know, there, there are lots and lots of different minority groups who could very quickly be misrepresented by bad data sets and so getting this right it does it does feel that that this is a real kind of opportunity to make sure that that we do build inclusion into technology and it could be an opportunity missed if it's not taken proper kind of uh, or paid proper attention to yeah definitely i think it's a gap in the market for this and i think you use the adam sandler example which is very true um, but it just shows when it is influential how much of an impact it can make. Um, so, yeah, I think it's interesting. The other thing that I found amazing in this was her entry into data science and how, yeah. that's, how that's kind of come from, you know, she used her skills. It's something that, you know, in our digital leadership report, we've, we've been saying about how you get in there, transferable skills, there's such a skill shortage that loads of people underestimate themselves. Um, I think you were saying, is it somebody at World Summit or at one of the events? And she was like, I don't have the skill set, but I just find it really interesting. It's kind of saying, you know, you can get into these parts. You know, they're really interesting in lots of different aspects. And, you know, she she was saying in the interview, um, getting into working with the NHS and like the government and how influential that can be. Um, I think... It's an opportunity missed if they don't talk about inclusion and diversity in this area, but also encouraging more people into data science and seeing the aspects of that as well. Yeah, I mean, you were referring there to Margot, who I met out in Lisbon, and she was a languages student who just had seen that Web Summit was happening because she happened to be in Lisbon at the same time that it was going on and there were signs everywhere. And yeah, you know, here's, here's a languages student at Oxford University who's like, why would these firms be interested in me but i'm curious and it is getting over that 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 mental hurdle and i think with sade you know she wasn't aware of the opportunities but i think she she references her uncle kind of suggesting to her um and it does show how important advocates are and allies and kind of people people being aware of what opportunities there are and presenting them to young people because quite clearly there are lots of individuals out there with very transferable skills who could thrive in the industry um and and if they're not made aware of it then then it's going to remain um a particularly narrow and undiverse um sector 
yeah, I totally agree. I think it's it was interesting just to hear how she progressed and then, you know, this massive gap in the market um, that they're obviously developing for. So it'll be interesting to see how they grow and also how they tackle some of the obstacles to ensure, you know, how they're measuring the bias of their information. Yeah. It would be really interesting to see how, as they grow, how they can make sure, you know, they are keeping to the definition of, you know, knocking out bias and stuff like that in their market research. One of the other things she talks about is collaboration between business and government and the changing mandate as to why a business exists so that a business should include social and ethical alignment to how business is conducted. And at the minute, it's obviously all about making money. I thought that was quite interesting because there's probably a lot of people who would go, we might scoff at that slightly. And then I'd imagine... And it may even be, this might be a sweeping stereotype, but it may even be a generational divide um, that has a very different view on this. Well, it, let's be honest, it, it could be. Um, mm -hmm. You're laughing at me like I'm treading on thin ice here. Uh, <laughs> but what do, what do you think? I mean, do you think, think organisations, obviously we have B Corps, we have organizations who are aware you know who, who kind of have tech for good at the, at the, at, at the mm -hmm. heart of their mantra they're existing to try and solve a problem but to mm -hmm. say that business should be aligned to social and ethical i mean they should be aligned but it's surely not as important to a business as making money right because if they don't make money they can't do anything but it's been shown time and time again that to be successful now you've got to have all of those things as well and yep. it is associated with better growth better profits better well-being better productivity so saying that it is you know all oh, these are just fluffy extras is kind of really underestimating the potential of it and yeah I think B Corps have proven that I think other businesses that are striving for the better on you know the ethical the social all of that have got the policies in place and are actually implementing it you know there's somebody keeping those accounts saying we actually do these things they're they're the ones that are becoming more successful and will also get the best talent and you know as a talent acquisition piece as well it it's only good thing so to really say it's just about profit it's just about making money is very very old-fashioned i think <laughs> you'll lose out on so many different opportunities and it needs to work hand in hand in so many different things but that just might be my point of view well look we'll use this as a springboard uh for the second interview because in that second interview i do kind of address this point with with jim who's on you global CISO, um around the point that increasingly if you're going to if you're going to embrace that way of thinking a large organization often will be collaborating with organizations who are in growth mode who are providing some of these assets or some of these products and services rather uh, and how do you do that in a way that actually still keeps your company secure especially when everyone is working in, in, a, in disparate environments i'm currently in my dining room and and hannah's in the office and i imagine both of us have downloaded and tried to use um products that the the technology department at harvey nash are not particularly favorable of at times so it, it's a bit of a night, nightmare and a bit of a headache for for global security departments so we'll hand over to jim see what he has to say but hannah thanks for your time today thank you very much so I'm chatting to Jim. Uh, Jim, you are joining us from where in the States? I'm, I'm not going to make the assumption that I know. Whereabouts in the States are you? Raleigh, North Carolina, the South, Southeast. The South, right. Okay. I have to admit, I've, so I've never been to the States. Uh, and I kind wow. of just kind of go East Coast, West Coast, yeah. Middle. The bit and that's in the middle. kind of how I divide the States. <laughs> 
Yeah. But North Carolina is known worldwide for being the source of NASCAR. So when oh, you think of NASCAR cool. racing, it started here, kind of like the UK with Formula One, right? We, we did the other end of the spectrum. We did the driving in a circle bit really well. Yeah, yeah, but that's 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 a claim to fame. I like it. I know um, so. you've recently joined the Harvey Nash Group, actually, as our global chief information security officer. Mm, very exciting. What What does that role mean? Because you're not a corporate <laughs> global CISO looking inwardly. It's more of a consultative, outward-looking practice, right? Well, actually, it's both. It's both, right. It's both. So it's a, it makes for interesting conversations on which hat I put on at what part of the day. But um, a big part of my role is to help secure Harvey Nash's global environment, right? So that is a, a main initiative. But also is, I believe, and as well as the leadership of Harvey Nash, obviously, that the concept of strategic VCSO work, virtual chief information security officer activities in the sort of advisory space is a perfect fit for what Harvey Nash is already doing. And it's a, a way for us to look at helping customers in a completely new and different way, but also leveraging our core competencies and capabilities globally, right? So, yeah, so sometimes I'm really kind of focused on how we're making sure we're secure and doing what we need to do for compliance and so forth. But also on the other stance is how well can I help connect with our customers and drive capabilities to solve their problems? I'd be really keen to talk to you to find out what you think is is up the agenda of most organizations at the moment. And, and I say that, I'll, I'll give some context around why. We've spoken to a number of different organizations re- recently, uh, growth organizations and large enterprise organizations who are looking at each other, trying to work out what they do with regards to hybrid working. You know, how often should we be in the office? Should we be at home? Our remote working policies are something that one organization over another can kind of utilize to to steal a march in in kind of the the global war for talent. And with that, there seems to be a lot of of policy and and governance being drawn up quite quite rapidly. And I just wonder if the infrastructure is there from a security point of view to to kind of keep pace, especially where you're beginning to talk about work from anywhere policies. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, the idea that, that a company has an estate that it can keep secure must be becoming slightly frayed and, and stressed in that style of environment. So the short answer question is absolutely. <laughs> it's becoming very frayed. Um, you know, COVID really kind of created an environment where we have to question these type of remote workforce capabilities. But I, here's what I will tell you is <clears throat> over the last several years, the remote workforce or uh, workforce scenario has been a growing trend anyway. Um, it was only until COVID where we were forced as IT and security to deal with it directly, you know, because it was being used in some cases in a malicious way by threats and so forth in this new sort of hybrid world. But I will also say is concurrently pre and during COVID is the advancing of technology solutions like moving to the cloud and so forth. So as companies, the big ones, you know, the Amazons and the Microsofts of the world to mention just a few is they've created an environment that allows you to, to move into that environment, which helps support this work from home kind of policy, which is great. But I think simultaneously is there are a lot of security advantages and disadvantages could be depending which way you look at it. But from a cybersecurity perspective, in many ways, your the optionality for security in the cloud is limited to what the provider will offer you, what it's capable of 
facilitating. Um, and of course, it's your job to figure out of what those capabilities are, what you can implement to move things along so you can support your users. And as you mentioned, be a differentiator, like for supporting remote workforce kind of thing. So the good side is, is you have a toolkit made available to you by the technology, but one could also, also argue it limits your options um, and optionality for security, right? And I believe security can be a real enabler for business. So you have to sort of find out as you look at this new technology, how to best use it. I think the short answer here is ultimately it's a transitional period we're all in right now. So transitional and moving to remote workforce while simultaneously transitional to this cloud environment that's becoming increasingly sophisticated. It's, it's not easy to say the least. Now you, you mentioned there that the increasingly security is 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 a, an enabler for business. Mm. You've been in the industry for what, twenty five plus years. Yeah. Uh, you kind of rewind ten years or so, and risk. You know, I suppose risk uh, changed that dialogue slightly. So, so security wasn't necessarily seen as enabler. It was almost seen as kind of that that weary, wariness around the level of threat to a business and could often be seen as some, sometimes a bit of a bureaucratic kind of computer says no moment. Um, what, what are the kind of the main um, blockers to that where you've got where you've got that ability to put more into services that, that Amazon and so on are providing, where people are kind of still hanging back, where they're still nervous, where maybe they're not enabling the business as much as they would like to be. So I'm sorry to report that um, we're still in the world where I think security can be perceived as the naysayer or the no. Uh, I think there's a big push by the industry to not do that as much. But like you said, I've been in this rodeo for a while, and you know I remember back when it was rosy. Return on security investment was a big thing, and then. Uh, trying to find that sort of thing to move away from the historical FUD, fear, uncertainty, doubt proposition, you know, and we still hover around that. But the big difference in the last decade is for a long time, there was a pendulum between being compliant and managing risk and policy and governance to then the pendulum would swing the other way and focus on technology. Technology can solve my problems because it's in the technical space. Over the last 10 years, it's been really swung over to the technology side. And what's happening now is we're starting to see more and more organizations kind of really try to look more at the risk side. And we're finding that in today's world, more organizations are apt to take a look at how security can enable something. So what do I mean by that is really not say directly enable and like putting it in gear and driving it away, but more so is removing certain barriers. So I want to be able to interface with third parties or create a new product or be able to perform something. And typically we look at that as a business process, an IT process, and then we go, okay, how's security going to stop this? And I think the conversation is more, more readily changing to, well, with security, we can actually enhance this process. We can share more data. We can even reduce our cyber insurance uh, premiums now through better, better cyber. So there's a lot, there's this people more open to these different types of conversations because I think everybody accepts the fact that cybersecurity is here to stay and, it, and it's important and, how do we infuse it with what we're doing? It's interesting that you talk about using kind of some some products and 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 some of those might be very data heavy. Funnily enough, uh, the other interview on this particular episode, um, CEO of a growth business who is talking about you know the, the mandate for business is changing. It's not just about making money necessarily. Now, I think there's a report out from EY that said that you know the social social sorry and ethical. Um, alignment of a business have, have to really matter and match up and, and that businesses are working more closely with governments. How is that viewed th through through the security prism? Because 
that is that is still quite an alien concept, right? For for the for the traditional cybersecurity department. It is absolutely. I think um, it's tricky because at the end of the day, when you pull back security, what you really find in many ways, like I said earlier, doing the basics, painting the bridge kind of thing, is a sort of honing in on protective measures, ensuring compliance, governance, and there's that component of privacy too, right? So when you look at this, you have to make sure that you're applying security practices in a way that promote fundamentally collaboration, right? So to be able to kind of connect businesses, not strictly on a revenue uh, partner model, is there has to be a degree of collaboration, a shared sense of vision um, and how that's done. So a big part of enabling that is collaboration, but then you deal with things like privacy, you deal with things like, um, I mean, the full spectrum of everything you deal with and you start bringing people together that go beyond just a core around, you know, how much money can we make together? Mm -hmm. And so things like IT or even IT security um, historically have been, let's just say, especially now with like third party focus on third party insecurity, right? Um, which is a huge focus right now, of course. So you have this kind of, I want to work together with you while at the same time you have this sort of investigative arm going well i want to work with you only if you're doing things the way i like them done um, and we got to find a bridge for that do you, do you think that the, the, the security leader has enough voice in the in the boardroom at the moment because it's interesting kind of picking up on that point that you know a ceo might get excited and go we, well we want this we, we want this ai powered product it's it's going to do great things for our business maybe they haven't thought it through fully and and that is from a from a growth business who hasn't had security baked in from the beginning, and it's it's kind of, uh, you know, that that product that you're putting into our environment isn't as secure as it could be. Have have people in your community, have your peers, got enough voice to say that at the moment? Well, I think a lot of people in the CISO community and and throughout the security community will believe that a lot of CISOs don't have visibility and and access to the board as much as they want. Um, I, I can tell you that it's not as easily quantified as that. I think there are uh, some people in the security industry, um, professionals that have difficulty in communicating the complexities of security in a way that the board can act on it, right? Um, and then the flip side is, is that um, there are situations where it's difficult to get a voice. I, I can speak that, you know, here at Harvey Nash in the short time I've been here, the, the amount I've been hugely welcomed and and be able to contribute to that that voice, which has been an awesome to say to to put a not a fine tooth point on it. But the uh, thing is, I think generally people would say that, but I think it's actually changing because there's actually communities, many of them under the umbrella of VCSO are acting as security advisors at the board level. So bringing in, you know, non-executive board members kind of thing to advise the board strictly from a cybersecurity space and collaborating with the board and with the CISO um, and in the event if there's not a CISO there, they f help facilitate those types of actions as well, which we see a lot in small, medium-sized companies. So I think, summarize, most people will say they don't have a voice, but in reality, I think the board's absolutely listening and ready to listen, but they have a lot of things on their minds, so you have to be sort of concise and to the point. <laughs> Look, Jim, we jumped around a couple of different topics. I've asked you uh, questions in a few different areas, but if you had to distill it down to the kind of the, the CISO's inbox, the, the top two or three things that you think people should be thinking about at the beginning of this year, what what do you think that would be? Well, immediate, my thing that immediately comes to mind is the the sort of tensions that are rising over between uh, Ukraine and Russia. Um, 
we've seen cyber warfare versions in the past in different uh, parts of the world, and there's always collateral damage. Um, new tools, new techniques, these things kind of come out more aggressive in nature, and they have a tendency to uh, spread pretty rapidly. We all know various versions where it's like NotPetya, for example, was a perfect example of that. So I, I think um, I'm not saying, you know, react uh but i'm saying is whatever you're doing maybe take a closer look at certain aspects on a more regular basis take advantage of what you're doing today maybe just simply do it more regularly perhaps you know but that'd be the one at the top of the list and i think after that is um i'd always encourage people to constantly be thinking about identity access management passwords privilege access management um, as we move to the cloud as we have different systems as you work with other third parties and software service providers and you know now it's just it's just super super complex so um i can tell you that one of the things i find myself thinking about a lot is how is somebody provided access to something, a resource, and then how is that access managed? Um, and it's just that simple. So as we look at data protection, data privacy, as we look at system controls and all that kind of stuff, you really kind of back all the way out and just go, well, who has access to it? It's just that simple, right? So even though the perimeter is softened and becomes somewhat nebulous, like firewalls of the past, as it were, that parameter is a move right up to the individual. And we see that with remote workforce as an example. So ID and access is, is a big one. MFA, multi-factor authentication. Um, if you're not doing it, you, you need to be that kind of thing. Well, look, it's lovely to, to steal some of your time, especially when you're new into the role. So yeah. for me, welcome to the group. I hope that this has been, uh, I'm sure it's been interesting to everyone listening, <laughs> especially if they're kind of in this field. And uh, yeah, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, David.